This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books and Middle Eastern Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Robert Elliott, the host of the channel. Today, I'll be speaking with Dr. Christopher Houston about his new book, Istanbul City of the Fearless, Urban Activism, Coup d'etat, and Memory in Turkey. Hi, Dr. Houston. Welcome to the show. Hi, Robert, and thanks very much for hosting me. Glad to have you on. Chris, I I wonder if you can begin the interview by telling us a little bit about yourself. Okay, good. So I'm a professor of anthropology. Uh, I work at Macquarie University in Sydney, Australia. Um, I've been teaching in the anthropology program there for for a long time now, 15 years. And before that, I was uh, uh, in in my first sort of position. I was worked in the anthropology department in New Zealand. Um, My research, ever since my PhD field work. Um, which was actually done in Istanbul in the years 1994 to the beginning of 1997. So my research for for most of my proper university life um, has been to do with Turkey um, and more precisely has nearly always been uh, fieldwork and concerns with the city of Istanbul. So in a way, I, I guess I, I would say that I'm probably an anthropologist of, of Istanbul. Um, that's, uh, yeah, that's been the main focus where, I, where I've sort of kept coming back to over the years. The, the, some of the themes of, of my work <clears throat> have been um, around the question of Turkish politics in, in the broadest sense, um and by the broader sense i mean that that has incorporated a a long interest in in istanbul in its development in the politics that are uh, involved in its um in its growth in its inequalities in its urban affordances <clears throat> in its um, political symbolisms built into the city by various administrations, um, and of course, political movements that take as their object of transformation the city um, in in various ways. Uh, my first, actually, my my field work in Istanbul in nineteen ninety four came about because I had just started uh, my PhD in Australia. We have a different way of doing the PhD, or we did then, than the way that you would be more familiar with in in the US. Um, basically, we don't do any coursework, uh, which is actually a pretty bad, bad was a bad feature of the PhD. So you enroll in the PhD after you've done your undergraduate study and a small thesis in an honours year. And when I did it, my supervisor said, oh, where do you think you'll go? Because I had been to Istanbul earlier and lived there earlier. <clears throat> I thought to myself, oh, well, I think Istanbul's a place that I really am interested in and love and hate and in the in equal measures. Um, I think I'll go and do my, my research there. And he said, fine, good. And by then I went off for two and a half years. There was no emails or internet or anything, so I 
wrote long letters to him by hand um, and lived in Istanbul for those those years and actually did a study on 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 the Istanbul Council, which had been won by Refar Party in 1994, um, and questions around what a supposedly Islamist political party, political force does when they get control of the city, of a city council. Um, can we really understand their policies as being a reflection of some type of Islamist program, um, etc.? And over the years, it became really clear to me that one of the, the defining fractures in Islamic politics in Turkey at that time was the question of Kurds, the Kurdish issue, Kurds within the party, religious Kurds, um, and Turkish nationalism, and the relationship between the type of religious politics that seemed to be you know, coming out of the Refah Party and those religious politics relationship with Turkish nationalism, which, of course, was always going, going to be a problem for religious Kurds. So as it turned out, yeah, that, that became the focus of, of my dissertation. In fact, the, the first book, which was on, which was on the Turkish state, Islamism and the Kurdish question. Um, yeah, that's that's a fairly long introduction. So, how did you come upon this project? Okay, so as I said, ever since 1994, I've been going back to Istanbul whenever I can. Um, probably this because this project has been has been a, a long time in the making. I would say nearly a decade ago, probably, I can't exactly remember, 2009, 2010, I was in Istanbul walking with a friend, <clears throat> and the friend, uh, we went past his old school and sort of out of the blue, this is how I remember it, out of the blue he said something like, oh, I remember a day that the whole student body at a school assembly, we um, put it, we stood there and we put our hands in the air and we made fists and we started shouting slogans. And I said, oh, well, how, well, that's interesting. What do the teachers do, et cetera? And he said, oh, yeah, we, we didn't listen to them. Um, it was that little germ of a, of a conversation which was the be beginning of this project because I, he would have been speaking around – he couldn't remember the year exactly. He would have been speaking around something that happened in 1977, 78, 79 perhaps um, – and the more that I then spoke with him about, oh, what was it like living in Istanbul then? What, why you know, was that common? What was the schools like, et cetera, et cetera? What was it like to be a high school student? Were you a member of a political um, grouping at that time? Were the political groupings, were there more than one at the schools? How did you relate to each other, et cetera, et cetera? As those questions um, were answered by him, I realised, and of course, uh, so I realised there was a, a really fascinating, um, uh, a fascinating historical project, if I, to change it into sort of an intellectual project, which is, um, was, which was to examine at a really basic level, what was it like to be a political activist in the, in the years before the military coup? of 1980. So that was that was sort of the, the origins of, of the project. I mean, of course, everyone who studies Turkey knows that the, the 12th September coup um, is, is a, has been or, or was a defining moment in, in the evolution of Turkish politics, or at least, of course, that's how it's normally spoken about. Um, but I realised back then in 2010 that when when you actually start to just scratch below the surface and, and read about the coup, um, that there, there's sort of, there was quite a bit of literature in Turkish about, <clears throat> about the coup itself, what happened and what it was like afterwards. Um, but, I mean, you'd be surprised, Robert, not that much actually about what it was really like. And there was a hardly anything about what it, about the the reasons 
for for the political activism and the huge sort of explosion of political movements um, that sort of were dominated Istanbul's streets, institutions, educational facilities, etc., from 1976 to 1980. Um, and on top of that, of of course, when you read, when I read anyway, general political histories of Turkey, I found that the coup was usually spoken about in in something like this, in these terms. Uh, the streets of Istanbul became un, ungovernable and unmanageable. There was gangs of uh, crazy, or sort of talked like this, gangs of crazy marauding youths um, who had no real, in brackets, had, who had no real political program but just sort of liked the violence or something, um, fighting with each other. Uh, and then that fighting moved into into very extreme forms of violence, in, including the killing of each each other by those gangs of youth, etc. And finally, in 1980, thank God, the military stepped in um, to restore order. In a way, that was a really common narrative, and um, of course, so the book is is examining both. A little bit about how that narrative was became so dominant. That's really the the, the way that the Turkish junta, after the, the military junta after the coup, spoke about uh, the city and justified the the intervention. Um, but obviously, there was a hugely complex range of of political issues. A hugely complex way of interacting with the city, a fascinating array of political groups, factions, um, and parties that were were involved in organising uh, social movements in Istanbul before the coup, um, and a and a and a and an untold story about what it was like to be to to live in Istanbul, especially as a political activist in those years. Over and above anything to do with 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 violence, which of course was an an important aspect of the sort of the the, the experience of living in Istanbul. So the the number of different groups, especially on the left, is is really overwhelming. I I remember reading uh, Lipovsky's classic text and him mentioning that nearly every ideologue had their their own party. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about? Some of the major camps, major players, and major divisions during this period. Sure. So, if we go back a little bit to another another coup in Turkey, um, actually, Robert, as you briefly spoke about before we before we began this this um, podcast, um, your own work is even going back potentially to the nineteen forties. Um, and we, we can trace back certain types of of, of leftist impulses, people um, maybe gathering around journals um, way back, in, well, not way back, but back in the 1940s. If we move forward a little bit, in 1960, with the 60-61, the coup and the sort of the reorganization of the Turkish constitution, then... Um, that new constitution, ironically, was a constitution that allowed much more political pluralism than any other constitution in the history of the Turkish Republic. And one of the outcomes was that was for the first time it was legal to organise a political party or a, a political grouping on the basis of class. Um, before that, the, the Turkish constitution and the uh, Turks political party had always banned political organizing on class grounds, given that at the core we can say Kemalism is sort of a type of corporatism. Um, so after 1961, the, we see the institution of the Turkish Labour Party or the Labour Party of Turkey. Um, and that party, because of the electoral system, actually manages to to get parliamentarians into the parliament throughout the 1960s. By the time 
of course, we come to the 1971 coup for interesting reasons. After after that intervention by the Turkish military, that party sort of is closed down, and therefore its its members are dispersed. Um, and once once things return to sort of civilian government after that intervention, after the seventy one intervention, it seemed to me from my research that that was that was the the really important period where the the militants the the activists who who had been probably in the 1960s gathered more or less under the umbrella of the Turkish Labour Party in the in Turkish tip um, that I mean there's probably more complex exactly than this but that those groupings then fractured and flourished so that by 1973 or 1974 which is where I sort of fairly arbitrarily begin the the story of of sort of Istanbul in this period by 1974 or 75 let's say there is a huge range of political factions political parties political fractions factions and fractions um organizing in Istanbul, the, the th- if we had to put them into a, sort of the main groupings, we, we can do that. There was a, a, a sort of a Soviet-aligned Turkish Communist Party, um, and all, all of these groups had, had um, over, the, over this decade, had groupings that split off from them. Um, and on top of that, they had very active youth movements as well. And sometimes the affiliated youth movements had a different name to the to the main political party. But there was a sort of a a, a Soviet-aligned, and that's an interesting question around what that meant and what the relationship was. Um, grouping, there was a, a a grouping which, as far as I could tell from my interviews, was the most influential sort of faction in Istanbul, which was um, a sort of, it was called Dev, Deviol, Revolutionary Way. Um, that was, they presented themselves in the, well, in the interviews, people were always talking about this in memory 25 years later, because in a way, that's the other concern of the book is what, is how, how do people remember also sort of uh, the political activities of their youth. They presented um that party presented itself as sort of a middle way between the Soviet-aligned leftist communist party and the Maoist-inspired sort of revolutionary groups, which was the third grouping in Istanbul. So the centre one, Devrimjiyol, um, sort of took inspiration from Latin America and South American politics, from Cuba, from Che Guevara, um, and some of their sort of, chief political strategies were more aligned with a type of, yeah, guerrilla revolutionary activism um, than, for example, much, and they were much more active in sort of that type of politics than were the, the Turkish Communist Party and its affiliation. So, yeah, roughly we can say there was three broad streams of leftist politics operating in Istanbul in the 1970s, the Maoist groups, the, the Turkish Communist Party aligned with the Soviet Union, and then a very big centrist movement, which there was equally indigenous. They're all indigenous Turkish political movements, um, but which was sometimes able to work with with some groups of the Maoists and some groups of the communists. Um, yeah, so Rob, that that's that's some of the the that that's the main ones, of course. As um is it Lipovsky and and other people note, if you do the the sort of political genealogies, you can get up to forty five or fifty groupings at that time, some of which shut down and another group opens up in their place or someone frack uh, splits off from a party and then sets up a new a new party. Now so we, we talked a bit about uh the left. Now what does 
the political right mean at this time? What sort of parties are we are we seeing? Okay, so this was interesting in my interviews. Um, leftist activists, of course, one of the main things they remembered was the, the terrible fractionalism <clears throat> um, and the fact that they were struggling as much against other leftist groups as they were against the right. It seemed from my interviews that the 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 uh, the rightist groups in Istanbul, the rightist group in Istanbul, was much more unified. Um, <clears throat> there was, and the other interesting thing about the rightist group is that it it had a much more organic link to the to the parliamentary right wing group. So. This is, in, in one way, we're talking about the, the whole sort of gamut of social movement politics. Uh, but at the same time, the parliamentary political system until 1980 is operating in Turkey with, a, with elections, both general elections and council elections. Um, and so people might know that the, there was, a, there was a, a string of coalitions throughout the whole 1970s because no one party was ever able to get a dominant majority. Um, and that allowed for the Turkish Nationalist Party uh, to actually move to, to, to move into the, the official government by making a coalition with Suleyman Demirel's um, Democratic Party, that, that sort of tradition coming way back from the 1950s. Um, so the the nationalists, the very extreme right-wing nationalists, both had an official place at the dinner table of Turkish parliamentary politics um, when they were a very small member of the fish of the government, but they were given disproportionate numbers of ministries, including in the late 1970s of the education department, which was probably one of the 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 most disastrous out had some of the most disastrous outcomes given that the the um the right wing nationalists got control of of administering high schools and some university teachers colleges in the main um so yeah they they were a very I mean their political ideology is basically anti communist on the negative side and on the pro cert pro side, extremely Turkish nationalist. Um, I mean, every party in Turkey is nationalist, but the, the flavor of nationalism is different. The the right wing opposition to the leftist groups, the sort of the street opposition, were extremely nationalist. Um, I mean you could almost say in some ways racially nationalist with their with their talk about the Turkish race, Turkish blood um Turkish culture, etc. And they were also violently anti-communist. So that they were you know, probably more than more than most of the leftist groups were responsible for um introducing forms of, of violence, assassinations, you know, killings Etc., which really did escalate things by the light by the late 1970s. And for those who might not be familiar with the Turkish right at this time, what are some of these um, you know active groups that are engaged in the street street fighting and some of the violence? Uh, you mean in the so which? Which groups, in particular, the leftist and the and the right group? Or so um, we we talked a, a little bit about um, Dev Devyol and uh, some of these, you know, groups that had a, a strong um, youth component. Um, is there sort of a right wing? Yeah, um, yeah. So uh, the in a way the 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 Nationalist Action Party is the official. Uh, Party of the Turkish right-wing nationalists in the parliament, their youth wing. Um, though, of course, there was always a because their youth wing is involved in is clearly involved in a lot of of violence and uh, sort of violent organising and training among themselves to use weapons, etc. Uh, their youth wing 
the the link was sort of downplayed. Um, but the so they the youth wing named themselves um, uh, the Grey Wolves, uh, and or and but their official name in some ways was was something called the Idealists in Turkish Ülkücüler. Um, of course, according to the Turkish left, they were fighting against fascists, and so they they never called them the Turkish nationalists, or they never called them you no know, grey wolves. They just said you no. Know, the situation in Istanbul was that we were we were fighting against fascists who were killing people and who were you no know, assassinating trade union leaders or were. Uh, or, uh, targeting people who are involved in leftist social movements um, from civil society, and that they got forced into a sort of a, a defence of their social movements really quickly because of the violence coming out of the the um the what they called the fascists and what the fascists themselves called called the sort of the the, the nationalists. Um, yeah, so the 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 street the street engagement. Is is pretty strongly between the grey wolves on the right side and a variety of of leftist groups who were also inclined towards certain types of violence because they um they believed in certain types of revolutionary theories that they maybe were predicated on successful you know, people's liberation movements etc. So yeah, they're the chief actors, I guess. So within this book, you, you talk a lot about something called spatial politics. Can you tell us a little bit about what this means and the role that this plays in the text? Okay, so because the book is is really focused on what it was like for political activists of both leftist and rightist factions, what it was like for those people to do politics in Istanbul at time to be a member of a group, um, to protest in the city, uh, to no, to try and to try and uh, to try and realise their political program. Um, I realised that that yeah, that the book and and their project is in one way organised to. Changing, trans, transforming Istanbul, transforming Istanbul's factories, transforming Istanbul's institutions, transforming Istanbul's um, councils and what those councils can provide to people, transforming Istanbul's slums. So all altogether, that sort of transformative political orientation towards the city and making the city different and making the city. Uh, the place that you no know, is the crucible of an emerging, for the leftist activists, of an, a sort of an emerging socialist society that slowly comes out of changes that you make in living in that city itself. Um, for all of those reasons, oh, bringing those together, I, I summarise that as sort of these were political movements that were involved in spatial politics at the core. I mean, changing the social relationships of Istanbul, which also changes the spatial relationships of Istanbul, etc. So yeah, spatial politics on that on that uh, under that definition is is just a useful organizing term for you no know, somehow or other getting a handle on on the sort of the focus of of transformation that the leftist groups in particular were you know, focused on. So w- within this, how exactly would a group make their presence known? Like how would they say, you know, this is this is this is our territory. It's not yours. Good question. So Istanbul in the 1970s is nothing like it is today. It's not a mega city, but it's still a really big city. Um millions of people living there and a city where um, I mean, the, the numbers are hard to know, but let's say at least 50% of people are living in what in Turkish uh, are called Gecikondu, 
Um, but we can say in English, 50% of people are living in informal housing and or shanty towns. Okay, they're not really slums because they're the sort of, that's not necessarily the, the best word to use because it may not translate from English into what the this, these suburbs were like in, in Istanbul. But let's say 50% of, of people in Istanbul, maybe more, were living in suburbs that over the last, that, sorry, since the 19, let's say 1950, but 1955, were new suburbs in Istanbul that were set up by people moving to Istanbul themselves, occupying state land on the edge of the city, building their own houses, um, setting up their own social organisation, et cetera, et cetera, because the, the state was both was insufficiently finan- was not financially able to, you know, put down roads or, or or do have an urban plan for for growth like that. Basically, they're like self self service cities, um, suburbs. Huge amounts of Istanbul in the nineteen seventy then nineteen seventies were relatively new. Uh, informal housing shanty towns, um, in which, which, uh, in which, these political movements recruited most of their their militants from. Um, so, those shanty towns that came clear in my in the interviews that I did with people were, were one of the the um, the core arenas of spatial politics um, groups. Groups emerged from those shanty towns. The political factions that emerged from them were, were not just sort of people who agreed ideologically with each other on a certain type of program. They were you know, people who were related to each other, um, maybe whose families had migrated to Istanbul from the same parts of Turkey. Uh, so there's a lot of other affective relationships in the political factions, which uh, over and beyond you know, sort of some rationalist explanation that people joined a political faction because they believed in immediate revolution or they believed in setting up a workers' cooperative or they believed in some type of Maoist program of of peasant revolution or something. Um, So those groupings are very strong in the shanties of Istanbul. Uh, Robert, I've just got a message. I reconnected, sorry. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> That's okay. Yeah. So those um those political groupings uh are are emerging from the shanty towns and of course they're they're working there. They're organizing people, the political movements begin to become um movements of social transformation. They might, for example, have students coming into the shanty towns who are doctors who are studying uh disciplines at universities that would be useful in the life of of people who are basically living in in very poor conditions, um, with not much council organisation of programs into those suburbs, um, and of course those suburbs then beca- became under attack from the right wing militants, and therefore they also set up their own you know, defence committees to defend themselves against strangers coming into the city. Sorry, into those suburbs. So the um, the shanty towns of Istanbul were a core arena of political struggle of spatial politics, um, and political groupings there. You no, know, by the by, 1977, 1978, were were arming themselves in defence against attacks coming from you know, militants of the the nationalists, and all of course because some of those that those right that right right wing group had. Um, affiliations with the Turkish police, also against police attacks or gendarmerie attacks into those suburbs as well. So, um, is there any way that, I mean, traveling through Istanbul, one could tell whose territory they were in? You could, apparently. Friend in interviewees reported to me that they were they were connoisseurs of the built environment. Um, and in slogans that were going up on walls, um, connoisseurs of listening to their environment because if there was a, a march coming down the street, they would listen to what the, the slogans were being uh, were being chanted, and then they had an, had a good idea about which political grouping it was. If 
if the group that they were in had good relations with that group, then they may not worry. They may join in, for example. But if they knew that it was a, a rival political organisation, uh, they'd have to take some other type of action. So, yeah, the whole city became involved, you could say, in a slogan war. That was what a friend said to me. It, says it was like a, a city. We were constantly painting over other people's slogans, getting control of a, of a university, getting control of a dormitory, getting control of a of a public area meant that you you also in, engaged in a sort of a, a, a literal spatial politics in terms of you know putting putting your your visual presence stamping your visual presence there in that space with your your slogans etc um yeah well, that that was a one of the really fascinating i guess parts of the of the repertoires of political practice that um, were engaged in by those leftist groups, not so much by the the right wing. I mean, they did have their slogans as well, um, but I think because they weren't so closely connected, they weren't a mass movement so much as the leftist groups were, and they weren't so closely connected to people. Um, I think they they had sort of they didn't really have territorial influence unlike the leftist groups, who I mean in some parts of Istanbul declared that they'd set up a, a liberated zone, um, or that they declared that they'd set up a, a self managing part of Istanbul where they were now you no know, in control of the situation and they were the people who would be making decisions about future housing development in that in that suburb. So. How how generally would the you know government re- respond to this? Um, let's say you know some group declares an area area to be a liberated zone. Um, what sort of police response or lack of response would tend to happen in a situation like that? Yeah. So as in Turkey today, Turkish politics it's not like the U.S. or Australia, which is a, is a form of federation. Um, Turkish politics has is a very centralised political system. There's the the parliament, which is you no know, uh, is the chief decision making body, and the only other sovereign level of decision making in Turkey is the council. So there's no state system. So councils in Turkey are are are, are won or lost through elections. And in the 1970, council elections were were vital uh, as well. So in the 1970s, even though the central government was controlled in the main by conservative political parties with affiliated very extreme right-wing nationalist parties supporting them in the parliament, um, the councils in Istanbul were nearly all won by the People's Republican Party, but that party itself, like everything in Turkey in these in this era, was factionalized. So, just to say that the uh, the Republican People's Party won won the Greater Istanbul Council doesn't necessarily tell you about which group within the um, that party got control of of the council. So, Istanbul in the nineteen seventies is a is a big Istanbul council like there is today, the Greater Istanbul Municipality, and then the city was divided into some other councils as well. So those councils had interesting relationships with the, the, um, the let's say, the leftist movements. Um, the leftist movements, of course, in one way, the very the, and the, had, had certain types of critique of parliamentary politics as being um, you know, a type of bourgeois politics or a politics that was designed to you know, stop the revolutionary movement. On the other hand, um, the councils had bulldozers, the councils had the facilities to make streets, the councils had the facilities to get control, to, to bring cement in. I mean, there was a whole lot of things that in the shanty towns, the councils uh, were actually officially responsible for as these shanty towns sort of grew, as, as people moved into a new area. Uh, they they needed all these sort of basic urban amenities, which the councils were responsible for. So, in yeah, the real politics of relationships between an, a liberated zone and the council, if it wasn't a hostile 
council was sort of interesting. Um, and they, uh, yeah, they may have been inv involved in various forms of, of cooperation as well. I mean, I did some interviews with people who were involved in, in the council politics of Istanbul in 1970s. One of the interesting thing about the council politics is was was that the the people's the Jehepe, the People's Republican Party, was factionalized, and one of the dominant factions in Istanbul, um, inspired by council work that was going on in countries in Europe, um, they established a new council movement. They called called it a new a new municipalism and that munis that new municipalism that they were trying to um to roll out in istanbul was was a very leftist type of people's oriented services council politics so in in one way yeah i sh i should have shown in the book that the um the councils as well were really interesting fulcrums of political um activism so uh, they had, yeah, we could say they had interesting relations, sometimes antagonistic with the leftist movements in control of parts of the cities that they had declared you know, a liberated zone. Some other councils who were controlled by the right, rightist parties obviously were very unsympathetic to, to other groups of activists in, in their suburb. Um, and then the more central institutions of policing, like the gendarmerie, who had nothing to do with Istanbul. Um, they were very anti uh, those in, those groupings that were you know, dominant in the Gejikondus. And so there was a lot of conflict coming from the police, the gendarmerie, etc., into into those suburbs. So you're describing a, a really highly polarized uh, a moment in, in time. Yeah. To what extent could groups cross uh, could cross group fraternization occur? I mean, could one be friends with a rival, someone from a rival group or party, or was this something that was pretty strictly controlled? Good question. So, in in the book, I write a ch I write about three three particularly intense zones of political activism. One, as we've just spoken about, is council politics. Um, and so council politics were in the main, especially in, in, the, in the less wealthy parts of Istanbul, were all controlled by, by left-oriented people in, in, the, in the official party, political in the JHP. Um, and those those groupings, so so council politics, I think, was characterised by some forms of cooperation, and probably movement in and out a little bit. I mean, I, I wouldn't exaggerate it because, as you say, it was a really polarised time and a sort of an extreme time, an extreme time of of where um, loyalties to political groupings and also sort of loyalties to the to the spoils that political activism may may bring in a very disorganised and a sort of formless city. So those loyalties were very strong. Another arena of politics was, of course, labour, factories, um, and the union movement. So there's another whole politics involved in 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 union and labour organisation. As you say, this it, I mean, Turkey is. I my experience is, anyway, is that it's always a ferociously polarized political society, um, and in the nineteen seventies there was three, maybe four union confederations. There was the main uh, union confederation, which which went back to the nineteen sixties. There was then a breakaway from that, which which called themselves the revolutionary sort of you know syndicate of unions. Confederation. Supposedly, the the right wing nationalists set up their own union confederation. Though I have sort of my doubts about whether that was a very genuine um, grouping. I mean, people used to say that they would send in people to you know, bash up unionists, and then claim that if you to and then claim to the workers that you could vote for their representatives. 
Um, and then there was a very sort of incipient Muslim Union Confederation. So, yeah, the union politics, the, the labor organizing, the, the striking, the, the, the whole 19, the 70, 75 to 1980, the massive politics involved in striking for better conditions, for better wages, for forms of better forms of health um, <clears throat> facility, etc. That was a another great arena of, of Turkish politics. And then the third one is sort of the 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 Gejikondus or the shanty towns and and what was going on in them. Now, Robert, interestingly, yeah, probably all of those arenas are characterized by both really extreme forms of separatism and yet some forms of movements between groups. In the shanty towns, it seemed to me that people people normally said it was really hard to move move from one political grouping to another. Um, the loyalties were strong and um, it was apparently no frowned frowned upon even to have relationships with people, no friendly relationships, let alone other more intense relationships with activist cross factions. Um, the union, the union movement wasn't quite like that, though it was very factionalized as well. And of course, the Turkish Communist Party in the 1970s had very close links with the revolutionary union confederation. Um, so there was forms of separatism going in union movements as well, because factories would vote, for example, for which union um, would would be able to represent workers. Um, and if there was two confederations vying or two two unions linked to the different federations vying for to win the un, the workers election um, to get control of say the collective bargaining processes that were legally instituted um, then there was a lot of of yeah hostility between representatives of different union groups as well so yeah look it, it it's clear that in the interviews with with it, activists that um, antagonism between people ostensibly who we could say from our perspective were all trying to reform to to, to radicalize society um, yeah the the forms of uh, aggravation between those groups was, was very intense. So you, you cover uh, a lot in this book. It's it's really an excellent contribution, and uh, I, I know that a lot of our, our readers are going to be excited to to pick this up. Um, were there any themes that we that we didn't uh, cover that you'd like to um, address? Maybe I could just say something about the the way that I organize the argument because that will sort of cover that'll cover the sort of the yeah the the core of it. Um, uh, one one early chapter looks presents a history of Istanbul, an absurd enterprise, but um, basically a very selective history which says, okay, the focus of the book is Istanbul, nineteen seventy six to nineteen eighty three. Actually, I'll come up to to that that nineteen eighty three part in a tick. Um, so. One part of the book presents a history which says Istanbul in the in how did how did Istanbul get to be what it was like in 1975? So it's sort of a history of the built environment, a history of urban planning, a history of spatial politics, and a and a history of sort of political movements, which which is the background for the the decade, which is the focus of the book. Um, then, as we've as we've alluded to. There's a couple of chapters, three or four chapters, which are looking at the main arenas of political conflict, the the um, the militant repertoires, the, the production of space, the spatial politics in Istanbul, and so that is in particular focusing on the gejikondus, on factories and municipalities as being sort of three arenas, and then there's a an, an interesting question around political factions. So actually, I have a chapter which is on uh, ideologies and factions and militants 
and basically you know, asking the question about what was it like to be a militant in in these very ferocious political factions um, and what was the relationship between political factions, the things they were doing in political ideologies. And of course, because my focus is always on the militants, is how those political ideologies were also sort of picked up or or no not understood or something by militants themselves in the um in the groups the last the last chapter actually the last two chapters in the book covers something that we haven't spoken about at all and that is um first the the military coup the intervention on 12th of September 1980 and then what it was like to live in Istanbul under conditions of martial law what were the spatial politics of martial law in Istanbul um so yeah rob we that that in itself is a really fascinating you no know, it was fascinating to write that those couple of chapters and and there's a whole really interesting um another aspect of of spatial politics in this time so um is this this is your second book that you've written uh is this the third one yeah third yeah, sorry. So I did write um, another book here yeah, on um on uh, uh on sort of a an examination perhaps of of Turkish nationalism, um and also on Kemalism as a political program, in, especially in in relationship to to um the Kurds. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So. Now that you've you've have uh, three books that are out, do you have any advice that you would give to either someone who's working on their their PhD or someone who's working on their first book project? You know, is there something that you wish that you knew, you know, when you were starting on book number one? Um. Well, because because I I work in the discipline of anthropology, um, and. I know that listeners to this podcast may be people who are who are training in political science, history, and maybe Ottoman studies or, or Turkish studies, um, and the methodologies of all of those disciplines are, are particular to themselves in some way. And of course, lots of things are transdisciplinary anyway. Uh, yeah, mainly, I guess I I could think and about what it's like to do to. to I mean to to work from from a methodology that that privileges field work as its as one of its core um, ways of gathering data. Not that I like that word, but um, of course, me anthropology or the type of anthropology that I like in any way is really also a type of history. Um, probably like like. Most people now in anthropology, I don't think anyone would think that you could understand anything without thinking really carefully about the history of it, of its you no, know, of its emergence. And in a way, actually, I reckon I could say that this book is a is a history of the political present, um, because it's not just a history about what happened in Istanbul in the nineteen seventies. It's a history about how the things that happened then. Um, configure the the types of, of events that that you that people are living through in the present so to go back to the question look for anthropology students field work is obviously still the core the, the core method um i think field work is an incredibly valuable and incredibly powerful methodology um i think that this book for whatever its flaws are um the 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 virtues of the book come about because unlike nearly all previous writings mainly coming out of political science about about this this decade the book actually is based upon field work with people who lived through the those years and and therefore gives us gives us a completely different account to 
to what journalists were writing about it and then pre after that to what academics themselves write about when they look at the political programs of you know, the Turkish Communist Party or they look at the political programs of the fascists and then say this is the main you know, issues that people were fighting over. So, yeah, I don't know. It's a long roundabout way of answering that of the question, Robert. Sorry that, um, yeah, for anthropology students, uh, of course, field work is, is, is vital and it should be still the core of the of your work that you produce um, and that of course though you supplement it with a proper historical sensitivity which is actually just a proper historical sensitivity to people's own lives themselves because people themselves are historical historical we're historical beings um, and so the the way that we think about anything in the present which seems to be the immediate focus of, of fieldwork and anthropology is only like the tip of an iceberg, literally, um, compared to the, the the prehistory of that movement, which is equally important. Um, that's probably not very helpful for, for people because um, I'm not sure. I mean, there's so many other things, I guess, that, that would be useful for students to know when they to think about how you change your dissertation into a book. Oh, Robert, okay, one thing. Well, I say this to my PhD students. I basically say it's a complete waste of time if you write a dissertation that then you have to sort of de-jargonize um, and simplify and somehow or other and take out the theory sections if you're going to change it into a book that a publisher will want to publish. So it's much better to just write, write your thesis as if it's the book anyway. Of course, I know that dissertations have a different audience in the first instance. They have to go out to the examiners or I don't know how it's different in the US compared to Australia um, or to your examining committee. Um, so in the first instance, you have to satisfy the requirements that they will, will want of a, of a piece of intellectual work. But it would save so much time if people wrote their thesis in the most approachable uh, manner so that you didn't then have to sit down and know when you approach a publisher, say, yeah, I'll, I can give you, in one year I can give you my revised dissertation because I've got to take out all the dissertation-type elements. So, yeah, maybe that would be my one bit of gratuitous advice. Write your thesis as if it's the book that you're going to send away to the publisher. Thanks. I, I, I think that a, a, lot of, a lot of graduate students that are listening to this will, will keep that in mind. So we've taken up a lot a lot of your time today um as is the traditional final question on the new books in middle eastern studies podcast what are you working on now okay so nice question two things of course though uh, the first one which is to continue work in istanbul is actually difficult to do it at the moment given that probably like with you robert um all travel to, to Turkey, actually all travel outside of, even interstate travel now has been um, prohibited by my university. Um, so yes, I I am planning <laughs> once I can do some, once I can get back to Istanbul, which is always difficult with teaching responsibilities, etc. I'm planning to do a, a new project on tr Turkish trade unions Um trade unionism, et cetera. But again, I think uh, I would like to do it as a type of phenomenological study of trade unionisms, uh, trade unionism, sorry, and trade union and the work they do. So I'd, I'd like in my fantasy, in my fantasy world to embed myself um, in, in a union within one of the confederations and to do some proper field work um, in that area. So that's sort of the, the ongoing stuff to do with Turkey. The other thing that I'm working on, which I reckon is really interesting at the moment, is that in our department we've been running a whole series of seminars around the question of of self-alteration. Um, so we've been sort of doing reading groups uh, in the department on on neoliberalism, the certain the certain promises that neoliberalism holds out that if you if you if you engage in certain types of you know, self-care, certain types of, of um, what's the word, sort of husbanding your resources 
self-transformation processes that you can become a different type of person, um, even if society doesn't change. Uh, as, as everything we've been talking about is, is about political movements that, that don't believe that and think that the only way that people's lives will change is if you change the broader context of the, of the political structures they're living in. So in a way, this, this thing that we're doing in the department around the anthropology of self-alteration, cross-cultural projects of self-alteration, religious projects of self-change, um, political projects of self-change, etc., is in some ways related to, to the things we've been talking about. But it's, a, it's um, looking at a whole range of case studies of sort of ways that people can alter their understanding of the world by engaging in new forms of, of um, projects that change their their perception of the world, for example. Um, you know, when people learn a musical tradition, they begin to hear the world differently. And so it raises interesting questions about what forms of self-alteration do apprenticeship style aesthetics traditions enable for people. So yeah, that's the, the sort of a, a more general um, empirical and theoretical uh, area that I'm working on and thinking about just at the moment. Yeah, these, these sound like really great projects. Um, well, hey, thank you so much for being on the show today. I, I enjoyed the book and uh, I really enjoyed the talk too. Robert, thanks so much for hosting me. Thanks so much for the invitation. Um, yeah, and it's a it's a pleasure to talk about the book. Yeah, and the and the the, the lives of the people that it tries to describe. Thanks so much. Great, and that was Christopher Houston talking about his new book, Istanbul: City of the Fearless, Urban Activism, Coup d'État, in Memory in Turkey. Goodbye for now. <laughs>